1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're going to be looking at verses 4 and 5 today. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5, let's go ahead and open up in a word of prayer. Lord, we rejoice in the truth of the gospel, and we rejoice in your word and its sufficiency for us. We pray that you might help us as we look at this text in front of us, that we would be focused on Scripture and that you would change us uh, as you desire. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for the last couple of weeks, we have been, uh, I think we kind of put 1 Corinthians 13 into low gear, and we have been working through this, um, the infamous love chapter, and we began 1 Corinthians 13 a few weeks ago in verses 1 through 3, and the main point of that text was that we are uh, commissioned to keep love central to everything that we do as Christians. And so, uh, if you were to exercise flawless giftedness and incredible sacrifice, and yet do that without love, it would mean nothing for you. And uh, everything that we do as Christians is to be characterized by love. And in that first message on 1 Corinthians 13, we provided a definition of love. And so far, I've kind of been returning to that each time here. Uh, to help us kind of remind, uh, remind us of what this definition is. And one of the things that we observed is that today there is a tendency to view love in kind of one of two extremes. Uh, we might view love only in emotional terms, and the world typically um, understands it this way, but also there's an element of... Um, of uh, temporary nature to love here, that I can fall into love and fall out of love, and, and love tends to be, in this perspective, very fickle. There also is uh, the other side where we are viewing love strictly in sacrificial terms. Love is a choice and a commitment. And um, one of the things that we said is, uh, as we are looking at these two different ways of looking at love, why not both? Why, why is it that love has to be one or the other? Uh, love is an emotion. It is an affection. It is delight, and it is desire. And so when you ask your spouse, do you love me? You want to know, yes, are they committed to you, but you also want to know, do they delight in you? Do they enjoy being with you? Uh, when we talk about love, we want to know that our spouse is committed to us, but also that our spouse is more than committed, has feelings of affection. And at the same time, love is commitment. Love is a choice. This is the staying power of love, that love is enduring. Love is not just temporary in nature, but it is enduring. And this is what gets us through those seasons where we don't feel like we love one another. Uh, one person said, I brought this quote up a few weeks ago, said that love is not a feeling, but a determined act of will. And I think that that's a little bit misleading. I think it's both. And so what we did was we looked to Jonathan Edwards to kind of bail us out and to give us a definition of love. And Jonathan Edwards said that love is the inclination and the will of the soul. And to kind of translate this 18th century language to today, what he meant by this was that it is the inclination, it is the desire and the delight and the affection, and it is the will of the soul. It's the commitment. It is that choice to stay 
here. And so this means that love is both, and we defined it this way, as both the desire and the emotion and the delight and the will, the commitment, and the choice. Now, from there, the next logical step is to ask ourselves this question. If this is what love is, then what does it look like in practice? Give me some examples or give me some some guidelines as far as what this love looks like. And that's what we are exploring now. Last week, we saw three attributes of love. We saw that love is patient, love is kind, and love does not envy. And uh, we're going to go at about the same clip today because I've got three more attributes that we're going to work through today, Lord willing. And so let's look at 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 5. Um, And what we're going to get at today is uh, the end of verse 4 here, where it says that love does not boast, is not arrogant, and then beginning of verse 5, or rude. And we're going to get through, Lord willing, these three attributes of love today. And so the outline, as was last week, is simply going to be point number one, love does not boast. Uh, Number two, love is not arrogant. And number three, love is not rude. So let's begin with love does not boast. This attribute, following along with the last one, is also a negative attribute. Love does not do this. This is the Greek word uh, that means to boast or brag or to heap praise on oneself. Um, One commentator, I'll put a few definitions up here for you. One commentator defines this as to be a windbag. Barnes says this about the word, but most expositors suppose that it has the notion of boasting or vaunting of one's own excellencies or endowments. Look at me. You want to be in the limelight, so to speak. Uh, This this spirit proceeds from the idea of superiority over others and is connected with a feeling of contempt or disregard for them. I'm better than you, and so I'm going to boast. We are, however, as Christians, not to boast. Proverbs 27 reminds us, Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. You do not boast in your own accomplishments. You do not boast in your status. You do not boast in anything in yourself. And the Bible does have a lot to say about this particular uh, attribute here. In Romans 12 and verse 16, it says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Matthew 23 in verse 12 also talks about this and says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And then Philippians 2 in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Bragging or boasting is a subset of the sin of pride. And last time we saw that patience was a subset of what? Self-control. Do you remember that? And so what we're saying now is that uh, boasting is kind of this subset of being proud. To boast is to be proud. It is to think highly of yourself. And yet God has designed salvation in such a way as to cut off boasting. And of course, we know this and can come up with a whole uh, another slew of verses that talk about cutting off boasting or to cut off pride. 1 Corinthians 1, we saw this earlier in our study on 1 Corinthians. God chose what is low 
and despise in the world even things that are not. Why? To bring nothing things that are, so that no human being might what? Boast. This is how the gospel works. The gospel is by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, so that you will not have any platform to stand on before God and say, I contributed 1%. No, no, no. God did it all. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 also says this, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that. Purpose. Why? Why is salvation not by works? So that no one will boast. God is at work in the world, exalting himself and humbling man. You will get on that program either way. There's nobody that, that, that exempts themselves from that program, okay? You'll either do it willingly or under compulsion, okay? And so we read in Isaiah 2 and verse 11, God says, The haughty looks of man, or the proud, arrogant looks of man, shall be brought low. The lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord doesn't share his exaltation with anyone. And so this is what God is doing in the world. He is humbling man. He is um, exalting himself. And anything that does not fit this plan, God is against. And so love ought to be such that it is not proud or boasting. Now, what is shocking, I think, about this particular attribute is we hate seeing this in other people. Have you ever come across someone who liked to boast? Okay? Did you enjoy that? Did you say, I'm coming over again for some more of this because I just enjoy hearing this person boast about themselves so much? No, you probably started to something started to well up inside of you, this kind of anger towards this person, this kind of even maybe hatred towards this individual, because the, the, the sin of boasting is one that we despise in others, but we coddle it in ourselves. We cultivate it in ourselves to a significant degree oftentimes. And this is, as usually the case with these things, uh, human nature is such that we are harsher on others than we are on ourselves. And we always have an excuse or a reason why boasting is appropriate for me, but not appropriate for you. And uh, as also is the case in human nature, we have come up with some very creative ways for expressing this. Okay? Now, if you are uh, just a beginner here, you're on the bunny slope, so to speak, and you are going to boast in yourself, then you simply will just say, just boast. This is what I've done. This is who I am. And you'll begin to parade that around to other people. You kind of are, in some senses, a walking billboard for your resume. And everyone that comes across you, that they get the whole spiel on all of your accomplishments. And you all know somebody who fits the bill here, right? and you avoid them like the plague, okay? I don't, I don't want to be in th- with that person because I know that they're just going to tell me again and again and again how great they are, and I'm sick of hearing it, okay? 
Then, uh, if, if you're past the beginner level and you're on the intermediate level, you won't brag about yourself because that's too obvious. And so, if you're at the intermediate level, what you do is you um, disparage the accomplishments of others, which has the same result that it makes you look better. And so, you begin to say, so-and-so is, is this, and, and they are that. And you'll be very careful not to say anything about yourself. Uh, you don't want to boast about yourself, but the end result is the same. You may even deceive yourself into thinking that you are a pretty humble person. Man, I don't really brag about myself too much. I, I must be a humble person. I, I, I'm humble. Okay? That's not how that works. Okay? Uh, but if you are past the beginner level and the intermediate level, and you are at the advanced level, then the way that you boast about yourself is through feigned humility. Has anyone ever done this before? Feigning humility, okay? So somebody comes up and they observe something that you did and they say, wow, this was a great job or this was this or whatever, and you just lather it on, right? Like, oh, no, 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 just doing my duty here. It was was nothing, really. Anyone ever done this before? Some of you? Okay. We call this a humble brag, okay? That's what this is. Whatever your strategy is, whatever the way in which you decide to parade your accomplishments to others, the point is that you want others to envy you in the end. And this is an interesting connection here because we just saw that love does not envy But love does want others to... I'm sorry, love does not want this. (laughs) We want others to envy us. We want other people to be envious of our accomplishments and be jealous of us. And so one of the ways that we accomplish this is through bragging uh, on our accomplishments. Jerry Bridges says, I do not boast about my attainments because I love you and want to hear about yours. Easier said than done. That's the first attribute of love today. The second one is very closely related to this because both of these things fall underneath the subset of pride. Pride causes me to boast, and pride causes me to be arrogant. Love does not boast, number one. Number two, love is not arrogant. Um, This Greek word... Uh, Fusiao is the word here, and it appears in the New Testament a total of seven times. And this word, to, uh, to be arrogant, means to cause to have an exaggerated self-conception, to puff up or to make proud. John MacArthur says about this word, arrogance is big-headed, whereas love is big-hearted. Arrogance here is rendered by other translations as puffed up, as conceited as proud or as inflated, okay? This idea of being puffed up, inflated, made bigger. Uh, I mentioned that this word appears in the New Testament seven times, and six of those seven times, this word is in 1 Corinthians, our book that we're going through right now. Only one time it's outside of this book. The other, uh, the seventh time is in Colossians, and Colossians renders it as puffed up. And that verse says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, and here's the word, 
puffed up or arrogant without reason by his sensuous mind. Today we would say that this person has a big head. Now arrogance, as we mentioned, is closely related to the last word to boast. And so I won't repeat all of the things that we just talked about, uh, about pride. But just like boasting, arrogance does stem from pride, a love for self. Arrogance is self-importance. Or to borrow the modern vernacular, it is self-esteem. And it is telling, I would suggest to us, that these attributes of love, properly applied, leave no room for the modern conception of self-actualization or self-esteem and so on and so forth. And thus, the opposite of arrogance is humility. To say that love is not arrogant is to say that love is humble. And we could summarize these two attributes in this way. Love is not, uh, does not boast. Love is not arrogant. Therefore, love is humble. Pride is when you esteem yourself highly Humility is when you do not esteem yourself highly. And to go back again to Jerry Bridges uh, on this word, Jerry Bridges says uh, that we, sh- we ought to be this. He says, I am not proud because I love you and want to esteem you before myself. Christians have, or more properly stated, should have a grasp of their own weakness, insufficiency, and littleness. You and I are insufficient, you and I are weak, and you and I are little. When you understand that, it is expressed through humility. Wow, God really is everything. Wow, salvation really is all of God. Wow, I've contributed sin to my own salvation. Wow, I've done that. Wow, Maybe I shouldn't be humble. Maybe I shouldn't be so proud and lift myself up in arrogance because of who I am and my accomplishments. No, it is all of the glory goes to God alone. So don't have a big head. That's the second one. Third one is this. Love is not rude. This word is a word in the Greek that is rendered by other translations as behave itself unseemly, or to act unbecomingly, to act improperly, to act disgracefully, and to behave dishonorably. According to uh, one lexicon, the word rude in the ESV means to behave disgracefully, dishonorably or indecently. Another Greek lexicon defines the word this way, to act in defiance of social and moral standards with resulting disgrace, embarrassment, and shame. Barnes says it means to conduct improperly or disgracefully or in a manner to deserve reproach. The word appears twice in the New Testament, and the second occurrence is in 1 Corinthians, same book here, Chapter 7 and verse 36, where we read this, and it's translated behaving improper or behaving properly. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. This word, to be rude, has to do with 
to, to not be rude is to conduct yourself in a way that is above reproach. Now, even though this only appears twice in the New Testament uh, as the verb form, the noun form of this same word also appears twice in the New Testament as well. And so we're going to look at uh, those two occurrences of this word rude in the noun form in the New Testament. First, uh, we're going to look at Revelation 16, 15. Okay, so this is the word rude, noun form. Revelation 16, 15 says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. It is the word exposed. The word exposed is the word rude. Okay? And then in Romans 1.27, it is translated by the word shameless. And this is talking about the immorality of homosexuality. We read, And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women, And were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts, or our word rude acts, with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Thus, to be rude is to engage in shameless behavior, here associated with homosexuality, or indecent behavior, or being exposed or immodest. And so thus the word, to be rude, really encompasses a wide range of activity. There's a lot of things that will fall under this umbrella that's a pretty big umbrella. We might say things like, you ought not cuss. Uh, We might say that the Christian has good manners, is polite and is respectable. He's not crass or vulgar or crude, not debased. You don't talk back to your mother, okay? You don't tell jokes that are double entendres. And also, given the sexual connotations for this word, we would say that you ought not dress immodestly. Now, there are uh, a couple of observations that I want to make here about this word being rude and all of the things that fall under this umbrella, indecent behavior, shameful behavior, so on and so forth. First, I want to make the observation, as simple and straightforward as it is, that if we are going to avoid indecent behavior, we need to know what indecent behavior is. That's pretty straightforward. If the Bible is going to exhort you to avoid shameful, indecent, and rude behavior, then you need to know what that is if you're going to avoid that. And so we're, we're kind of pushing back a little bit deeper. What is rude behavior? We understand that love is not rude, And we want to emulate this attribute of love so that we can be more like Christ. And of course, we know that Christ himself is not rude, and so we should put this attribute on if we want to be like him. But what kind of behavior is rude and indecent, and what kind of behavior is not? In other words, is there a list somewhere that tells me what behavior I should avoid so that I'm not rude? And the answer to that is yes, there is a list somewhere, and it's in the Bible. And so that's why we're going through the Bible verse by verse, because we're going to come across these things over the course of weeks and months and years to to find out this, 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 and this. We want to be, as we have said many times, whole Bible Christians. And so there are all sorts of things in Scripture that tell us this is what decent behavior is, this is what respectable behavior is for Christians, and this is not respectable behavior. 
But I want to make a corollary to this, and that is just like that behavior is laid out for us in Scripture, it is not laid out for us in culture. And the point here is that we usually form our idea of what is rude and indecent and inappropriate based off of culture. We have a tendency, as people living in a culture, to adopt our ideas of what is decent and appropriate and what is not shameful behavior. We adopt that from our culture. We usually do not think about it. We just absorb it. And we absorb this through the course of minutes and hours and days and weeks and months of years of, of living here again and again and again and again and again, year after year after year after year after year. Your television teaches you this. Your work environment teaches you these things. The grocery store teaches you these things. Uh, politics teaches you these things. Education teaches you these things. And we are more likely to not think about it and just absorb it and to absorb what the cultural conscience is. However, that is not a reliable guide. The cultural conscience in the West, here in America, the cultural conscience has been seared. There, there, there are very few remnants left of a decent conscience in our culture. Things that should be considered to be rude or indecent or shameful are not considered to be rude or indecent or shameful by our culture. And we could go on. I, I could give an entire message just on all the examples of how this has flushed itself out. But just consider as one example the fact that a Johns Hopkins University Center just hired uh, an individual who wants to normalize uh, pedophilia. And they've hired this individual as part of a group to prevent child abuse, okay? Now, I don't know how this works in any way, but you can see that the conscience is seared. There is no idea of what it means to be decent people anymore. Uh, and as an aside, uh, a small rabbit trail, I think that if the cultural train wreck that we are on right now, if it does not end, if God does not intervene, that I think you will see pedophilia as the next one that is to be normalized in our culture. We already are seeing this by many individuals, but, but it hasn't reached mainstream yet, and I think that it is going in that direction. Nevertheless, the point here is that we live in a culture where this is a possibility and influential people are pushing for it. And this could only be a possibility in our culture if we have normalized a thousand other perversions before it. And that's what's going on in our culture right now. In a culture where this is possible, nothing is considered indecent. Here's my point. If you want to know what it means to be rude, don't go to the culture because they don't know what this means at all. Nothing is considered rude or indecent. Nothing is considered scandalous. Nothing is considered shameful. And so if you are going to obey this command to not be rude, 
then you cannot just sit around and absorb it from your neighbors, your co-workers, TikTok, and Disney+, Plus, because it will not take you to the right destination. And so if you are going to successfully obey this command, it, in, the, in a culture that has gone this far, if you are going to obey this command to not be rude or indecent or shameful, there are going to be times when people are going to call you a prude. Okay? In fact, I would say that if nobody ever thinks you are a prude, then you're not doing it right. Because the standard is scripture, not culture. Now, there is an interesting verse on this very topic. In Romans chapter 16 and verse 19, and it says this, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. What does it mean when the Bible exhorts us to be innocent in regards to that which is evil? It means that you're a little bit naive about the evil things in the world. There should be jokes that go over your head. If there is no cultural joke that can be told that doesn't go over your head, and you know all of them, then something is amiss there. You are to be innocent regarding that which is evil. If you are so steeped in the world that you know every cultural reference and every double entendre and every sexual joke, then something is seriously wrong. Let's be steeped in the word instead. It is okay and good to be naive and a prude in these matters. I'm not saying it's good to be a naive person, okay? We are to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves, we understand that. What I am saying is that it is good to be naive, or as the Bible says, innocent in these matters. And I think that's both, the innocent to what is evil, I think, encompasses two things. I think it encompasses our knowledge of all the evil in the world. I think it also involves our experience. You should, you should have, your experience should be innocent in that you haven't been around the block put off these particular deeds in terms of your experience. Now, I understand that the Lord saves us from these kinds of things and so on and so forth, but we are not to go out and seek these particular things. Okay, the problem is, culturally speaking, we're talking about rudeness or indecency. The problem is, culturally speaking, we have, in 21st century American culture, lost the ability to blush at all. This mean, this, some things ought to be unthinkable in our culture. And if they are not unthinkable in our culture, we should strive to make them so. First in ourselves, then in our families, then in our church, then in our community. But we don't make them unthinkable by going along with them or laughing at them. We make them unthinkable by condemning them. Now... The postmodern tendency, because we are living in a postmodern culture right now where there is no such thing as absolute truth to each his own, 
The postmodern tendency would be to silence the force of this attribute of love by observing, well, there are thousands of interpretations of what it means to be rude. There's many interpretations of what it means to be indecent, many interpretations of what it means to be modest. And by the way, if you're thinking that, you did not come up with that yourself. Culture told you to think that way about this. Postmodernism is the reason that we have a tendency today to think all cultures are morally equal. And it's wrong to say that this culture is morally superior to this culture. Biblically speaking, however, cultures that know how to blush at sin are better than cultures that don't. What? We're Christians. Christian culture is the best culture. Christian culture is the only decent culture out there. And we want to advocate for that which is Christian in our community, in our society, so on and so forth. Postmodernism goes against this. And let me just say this. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm serious about this. If some of you here today are just digesting the latest sitcoms on Netflix or Amazon, you need to cut that off. And I don't care if you call me a prude, or you call me a legalist, or you call me a fundamentalist, or you say, just shut up and just preach the gospel. If you don't think you're getting an education from that, then you're the one who's naive. The Bible gives the standard. Don't be rude, don't be indecent, and don't be engaged in shameful behavior. That's what this text is telling us. Love is the opposite of being rude. Love is the opposite of being indecent. Love is the opposite of being engaged in shameful behavior. All right, so where do we go from here? You have to forgive me for having a little bit of an extended conclusion here because there's a few connections that I want to make here and a few uh, things that I want to kind of wrap together, so to speak, in all of these attributes that we've been looking at here. And I want to do a little bit of work here to address something that perhaps, maybe, I don't know, could be bothering some of you. A sermon like today's, talking about these moral issues, could seem like a step too far for some. Some may ask whether there is any room for teaching good manners or whether this crosses the line into moralism. I'm not saying you have to put the fork this way and that way, okay? That sort of good manners. But respectable, decent, not shameful behavior. Or have we gone too far over into moralism? Love does not boast. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. Shouldn't we just skip past this part of the Bible? Or shouldn't we just take a little bit more of a postmodern approach? That is to say, we can read it, we can teach it, but just to each his own as far as the, the conclusions. You know, boasting and arrogance and rudeness are broad terms, and the applications could be numerous. We could probably give hundreds, if not thousands, of applications from these three little words today. And so why don't we just preach the gospel and just let people come to their own conclusions about this? Now, there are a couple of things here to mention. Um, 
First, I don't know that I've ever come across someone who's made this argument and is consistent. Just leave all the applications to... I've never heard anybody say, I've never, ever met any person, ever, to say there are many interpretations on slavery in the Bible. Don't be so harsh on slave owners, John, okay? Just lighten up a little bit, okay? Let them interpret the Bible as they want. There's many interpretations. There are many interpretations of this, by the way. This was a big issue during slavery in America, and there were all sorts of theological debates about slavery and the Bible. But I've never heard anyone argue this way. Uh, no one has said, come on, John, don't be so hard on this issue of slavery. Just preach the gospel. I guarantee you that I could preach in almost every single church in America and preach on the evils of slavery and get amens from the East Coast to the West Coast. I, hardly a church <laughs> that would be upset with that. Go to those same churches and preach on decency and modesty, and half of them will kick you out and never invite you back. If you are going to be a just-preach-the-gospel guy, then you cannot be a pick-and-choose just-preach-the-gospel guy. You have to be consistent. If just-preach-the-gospel means you cannot preach the imperatives, the commands in the Bible... If that's what we're saying, if we're saying well, just, just, don't preach on decency, just preach the gospel. If just preach the gospel means only preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and don't preach the imperatives or the commands of Scripture, then be consistent. Don't preach on anything. All the commands. Just take some scissors and cut them out of the Bible, okay? Don't do that. I'm just <laughs> If that's what you're going to be, then be consistent. That's first. You can't be a pick-and-choose guy. You have to be consistent. Second, I want to give you an illustration. This illustration, by the way, is not unique to me. I'm not trying to claim it as my own, um, but I have expanded on it a little bit here. Imagine that the Bible is represented by a bicycle wheel, and there are many components to this bicycle wheel, okay? And it is our goal, and I would agree that it is our goal as Christians, to be Christ-centered and gospel-centered. Here's what that means. That means that the gospel is in the middle of that wheel. It's the hub. If we want to be gospel-centered, and I think that we ought to be gospel-centered and Christ-centered, then the gospel... And the atonement and Christ, it is at the middle. It's the hub of this bicycle tire, this wheel. And all of the spokes on this bicycle wheel connect into the middle. Some are connected more closely and some further away. But all of them have a path to the middle of this hub. Now, we could give numerous examples of what these spokes represent, but they could represent this command of the Bible and that command of the Bible and this imperative and that imperative. We could say that you know eschatology is here and you could put it wherever you want it to be on these spokes and this thing is here and this is here. Since Paul exhorts us to preach the whole counsel of God, we have to preach everything on that wheel. 
the whole, the whole thing, okay? Every single component. We need to, to take time and we have to look at the hub of, of that. And we need to look at the spokes. And we need to look at the rim. And we need to look at the tire. And we need to look at the, the, the whole thing. We need to be whole Bible Christians. Nothing should be left out. You, you don't look at that and say, this, this spoke is unnecessary. This, that spoke is unnecessary. Nothing should be left out. This is, by the way, why expository preaching? Expository preaching is because of the whole thing. Now, as simply as I can, I want to tell you, using this illustration, two errors in the church today. Here's what legalists say. Legalists say, I don't need the hub. And antinomians say, I don't need the spokes. Legalists say, I, I can obey all these laws and these rules and these commands, but I don't need to do that in relation to and in reference to the hub, in relation to Christ. I don't, I don't, I don't need him as a source of grace for this. I can do this in my own strength. Okay, so they've detached the hub from the spokes. The uh, antinomian, or the lawless person, uh, says, I don't need the spokes. What are you getting all in a bunch about all these rules for? We've got grace. We've got Christ. Forget all of that. Christ came to get rid of all of this and just preach the gospel. Just the hub. Now, the issue with this is both commit the same crime because they both suppose that the hub ought to be separated from the spokes. They ought not to be separated from one another. Biblicists keep both the hub and the spokes, but here's what they do differently. They explain the relationship between the hub hub and the spokes. This is how they relate to one another. So to be gospel-centered is not to jettison the commands of the Bible, but it is to explain how the commands of the Bible have their source and motivation in Christ. That's what being gospel-centered means. I know that it has been taken to mean a lot of other things today, and I'm saying that's what this means, okay? Or at least that's what I mean by that when I say that, is that we're connecting these together. This is the goal of Christ-centered preaching in a gospel-centered hermeneutic, as I do believe in. You're in the Old Testament, and you're preaching the Ten Commandments. And here's how you do it. You take that spoke, and you trace it all the way to the hub, and you say, see how this meets up here? And and you're preaching Genesis, and you say, see how this meets up here? And then you're in Ecclesiastes, and you say, see how this meets up here? And you trace all of these back to the center, What you don't do in the name of a gospel-centered hermeneutic is toss out the spokes or the rim or the tire. That's neglecting our responsibility to preach the entire counsel of God. That's number two. Number three, if the New Testament hermeneutic is to just preach the gospel and get rid of the spokes, then why are there so many imperatives and commands in the New Testament? The New Testament is still giving commands. It's still telling us we should live this way and not this way. 
If uh, just preach the gospel is a New Testament hermeneutic, then why are there so many commands? And if just preach the gospel is not a New Testament hermeneutic, then why are we using it in the first place? If it's not in the New Testament, then why are we using this? And what basis do we have to ignore the ethics of Christianity? Or are we in, as some might erroneously suppose, some sort of post-New Testament dispensation where we cut off portions of the Bible? And I'm afraid that just like the Thomas Jefferson Bible cut out the supernatural and kept only the ethics of the gospel, that Christianity today has done the opposite and that they have cut out all the ethics of the Bible and said, let's get rid of that. And so now that we've addressed that, let me do what I said we should do, and that is show you how the spokes and the hub line up here. Okay? What is the relationship between today's attributes of love and the gospel? And I'm just going to put it in Sinclair Ferguson's words. We saw this a few weeks ago in his book, the 9 a.m. service, but he simply says this, without the power of the Spirit, we would lack the love for God that energizes us to keep his law. But without the law of God... Uh, we would uh, our uh, I suppose say our without the law of God our love for Him would lack direction. Without the power of the Spirit we would lack the love of God that energizes us to keep His law. But without the law of God our love for Him would lack direction. If I am going to love God and love others, that love is going to require direction. How do I know what, love, what, what it means to be loving? Our world has an idea of what that means. Okay? And if we don't derive the meaning of that from Scripture, we will be inclined to absorb that from the world. And I would suggest that the world's idea of love is, is temporary, is transient, is shallow, and in many ways is very just affirming and never confronting. You do you. Okay? That's the message of love from the world. They're giving imperatives and commands. They're telling you this is what love looks like. And Scripture is doing the same thing. And so, what 1 Corinthians 13 is... How does this line up to relationship to the gospel is 1 Corinthians 13 is laying down tracks so that this train of love can go this way but not this way. And we've seen three of those attributes today. Love doesn't boast, is not arrogant, and it's not rude, indecent, or shameful. And so if we are going to be gospel-centered people, then we are going to direct our love this way, and as we've been seeing at the 9 a.m. service, not only does this give us a roadmap, a sign pointing this way, the gospel does more than giving us a sign pointing this way, it gives us the enablement to do that. And we saw that today, Titus 2. Grace of God gives us the ability to obey. In other words, we are saved by the gospel, and now that we are saved, we are called to love God and love others. And 1 Corinthians 13 tells us the direction of that love. It informs us on the attributes of that love. It clues us in on what we are to cultivate that love to look like. Do you want to love God and love others? And here's the application. Don't boast, don't be arrogant, and don't be rude. And the Bible tells us 
what that looks like. We've seen a lot of that today, and we're called to be whole Bible Christians. So let's continue to study and get to know these things so that we can be more like Christ. Thank you, God, for today, your grace, your mercy, and for calling us to be loving Christians. We pray that you might help us to do this, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that our love would not lack direction, but that we would look to Scripture to find out what that direction is in all of these kinds of ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.